Hey, hey, stop. Stop using this. No, the red. Just push the red button. There you go. Yeah, that one. Okay. Hey, you. Yeah, I know. I need to do this announcement on the uh, wittiest five star review. No, they can't hear you. <laughs> no. Okay. Hey, everybody. Before we start the show, the interview with uh, Frank Smithers, I got to get back with everybody on the wittiest five star review. So, and we had this contest that went on, I guess it started in July and went all the way through Christmas Day. So now it is December 30th, 2020. We sent the reviews off to our panel of judges. They came back and told us in Van Rees, one wittiest five-star review. And it's out there on uh, Apple Podcast. So if you want to take a look at it, you can go to Southeastern Fly on Apple Podcast. It's under highly recommended, and he sent it in on September 30th of 2020. He He says, don't even live in the Southeast. But uh, he still listens to Southeastern Fly, which is really cool. He likes the way you learn about the background and... After after every, he says, after every episode, I want to jump in the car and head for the Caney Fork or the Smoky Mountains or the Forgotten Coast. So he has listened to several of these, or she. And if that's not enough, so this is where it gets into the witty part. And if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, uh, and you've heard People of the River, this is where where uh, in Rand Reeves, he moves into more, or she moves into more the witty part of the review. If that wasn't enough, it's worth the price of admission, which is free. It's worth the price of admission just for Dan Charlie's Whiskey River story. Classic. Five stars. Highly recommended. And don't forget to mend. So you can tell that uh, N. Van Rees has listened to quite a few podcasts, as they say, too many. But what else are you going to do whenever you're mowing the yard, traveling on an airplane, riding in the car to the river, which I hope everybody's doing right now. But uh, so that's it. We've got the box of swag. It's now come into a box of swag, and I'm looking in. It's got hats and sunglass holders and some t-shirt or two. There's quite a few things in there that'll that'll make N. Van Rees life just a little bit better, hopefully. But anyway, for all the folks that have given us the five-star reviews, we really appreciate the, the reviews and you taking time out and do that. And if you want to write a review, that's even better. We appreciate that. The, the contest is pretty much over. Thank you so much for listening and turn it back over to our, our interview with Frank Smithhurst. Three. Two. You know, David, I started fishing uh, with a cane pole in Georgia. Uh, I remember big missions up to Lake Lanier. I remember big missions down to the Okefenokee. I remember big missions down on the East Beach of St. Simons. I remember catching fish and a lot of pinfish and little fish off the beaches of uh, northeastern Florida. My family and I were down in that 30A area when there literally was nothing there. We were a really big outdoor family. We went around the south collecting plants. My mom was a botanist. We traveled around in this big blue Dodge van. Smithers just driving around everywhere in the south from Atlanta. I started fishing because we were always in some sort of interesting place to fish. And was it cane pole and worm, cane pole and crickets, that sort of thing? Cane pole and all sorts of things. There was nothing, you know, and really quickly I became really interested in, you know, rods and reels. And at a really young age, I or had Sears and Roebuck rods and reels. And then pretty quickly I started fishing with uh, Shakespeare 
and Fenwick Rods and Fluger and then ultimately Penn uh, spinning yeah. reels. Yeah. So, you know, I, I started fly fishing when I was about seven or eight, but oh, wow. I had already been fishing really serious. Seriously. And I started with even, you know, when I was a toddler with a hand line, that was more in the ocean up in Maine. My family is part from the North and part from the South. That's why sometimes you hear, sometimes you're going to hear some accent out of me and sometimes you're not. If, uh, if we were doing this a little bit later in the evening and I was drinking a couple of beers while we were podcasting, you would hear a little bit more twang, uh, southerner wise, out of me. Uh, it's it's just been confusing all these years. You know, I'm a I'm a Yankee in the South, and when I go, uh, you know, up to see my family in the North, they, I'm a redneck up there. So, you know, <laughs> not sure where I belong. Where I belong. I totally get that because we lived in South in the North whenever I was a kid. Born in Memphis, moved to Michigan, then moved oh. to, to Chattanooga. So. Yeah, I totally get that. And I've probably got enough twang for both of us. So I think I was about to say thing pretty good. <laughs> that's an interesting blend that Michigan, Tennessee one. Pretty, yeah, pretty exotic. Yeah, kind of kind of outcast in a way. But anyway, and as far as the pens and the, the Shakespeare's and the Pflugers and all that, my grandfather had all of those reels and all yep. of those 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 rods. And my dad had the Daiwas and the mm-hmm. and the pens and all that, too. So. I think our, our paths probably kind of started similar, but 30, and 30A has grown into a metropolis now. I don't know if you've been down there recently, but it's all big houses yeah. and, ex- and expensive stuff, stuff that, that, you know, I try to probably try to get away from more than get towards. So Yeah, you know, I, I fished uh, down out of watercolor and went to a film festival down there uh, uh, a few years ago. And though it's grown, there's boy, there's still some gorgeous places, you know, right out the back yes. door. Absolutely. Well, welcome in to Southeastern Fly. This is David Perry. I'm your host today. Thanks for stopping by and giving us a listen. Feel free to share this podcast with your friends and your fishing partners and hit that subscribe button. That helps us out as well. Let's get rolling now. So let's talk about my guest here. First came across this guy when I was meeting with a group of friends. And if you've listened to the podcast before, uh, you know that I'm part of a group for over 15 years and we call ourselves the Liars and Tires. Uh, We're a loose-knit group, but we travel together. We meet together. We eat together. We tie flies together. We tell lies together. We do a lot of things together. Uh, And we meet at each other's house about once a month or so. And during that meeting, we'll, somebody will cook, somebody will tie, and eventually we'll start watching TV. Since it's a fishing meeting, we generally go to fishing shows as our backstop, and we got it, got to the point where the host would record shows, and we came across this show one time called Trout Unlimited. Now, if you've been around as long as I have, there's been a couple of different Trout Unlimiteds, but we recorded that, and we sat down one night with uh, all of us had a... a nice uh, adult beverage and we started watching what was called trout unlimited and we saw this guy wheel out of a um, complex i guess i should say in a truck and he was towing an airstream behind him and he the first shot that i remember may not have been the first shot but the first shot that i remember was him talking on the phone saying wow i can't really believe that i'm doing this but this is really cool, and I'm headed across the United States. He traveled across the country, and I'm assuming he traveled probably with a cameraman or had somebody pull up, but he was pulling that Airstream, and it was decaled up, if I remember correctly, as a trout, and maybe it was a rainbow trout. I can't. Now we're trying to get back in my vault here, and that's going to be, be kind of hard to do. But he was pulling this cam- Airstream camper, and he towed it across the, basically across the United States. He went uh, for all the way from, I believe, Colorado, that area, out through Missouri, up into 
ironically enough, Michigan, where if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I've got a, some uh, ties to Michigan. And then down through uh, Nashville, he basically came within about five miles of my house whenever he passed through Murfreesboro, and he's headed down to Atlanta, which is where he grew up. Growing up in Atlanta is what makes him a Southern boy, and therefore he qualifies to be a guest on Southeastern Fly. He's a guide. He's a former sales rep. He ties flies. He hosts trips. He's fresh off the season guiding in Alaska. Please welcome to the podcast, Frank Smithhurst. Frank, thanks for coming in, man. Thank you, David. I'm really glad to be here. I've got some questions written out. We talked earlier on the phone uh, to get this thing arranged, and, you know, boom, a couple hours later, here we are recording. You sitting in your in uh i assume that's your house that you're sitting in is that right yeah yep this is my house and i i i uh i put the house plants in such a way so that it looks like i'm speaking to you from between two ferns <laughs> and i've got my picture my autographed calendar uh poster of joan wolf behind me as well as a uh wooden my my wooden drift boat uh, oh, yeah, placard that. that a friend of mine made yeah he did a really good kevin did a really nice job on that and you can't really see it but there's a older reel sitting right there beside it oh, cool. so we're we're all we're gussied up here we're ready to talk some fishing let's do it so let's get started you started fishing and you were I, you you talked about going down into florida and your and your mother was a botanist yeah. so you started around the atlanta area i guess is that does that sound right you know as i may have mentioned before i ha- I'm, I'm from a, a dual family one was north and one was south um, my father was from raleigh north carolina and my mother was from boston massachusetts and when we would go up and visit my mom's family in the north i would fish for bass and particularly mackerel and bluefish and stripers in the ocean, flounder. Mm. When I was a tiny little kid with a hand line, and then when I'd come home from that, I started to really get, uh, you know, after the fish in Georgia. So it was it was so enveloping for me, starting when I was about four years old, to go to the water and try and catch something nonstop uh, that I really, uh, there was no place that I didn't at least try to fish a little. And sooner or later, growing up in Georgia, you know, I was really lucky. There's so many amazing places to fish around Georgia and the American Southeast. You know, when you're at that, when you're that age, you start, you, you find those little spots like the little pond in front of the bank, the little pond that you had to climb the fence to at the golf course, you know, the river yep. that your parents drop you off at while they go to work or go to go shopping or whatever. And I don't think I have, maybe I haven't really grown out of that like some folks do. And it sounds like you probably really have, haven't gotten gotten past that either. No, no. I mean, you know, uh, some of the some of the greatest fishing I've ever had, and this is ongoing, is sometimes way closer to home and base of a project than some of the more elaborate fishing, which you know I do some of that too. You know, sooner or later, really digging into and becoming extremely familiar with you know your backyard or your close to home spots. Sometimes that's the that is the best way to really become a better fisherman and you know catch some really remarkably exotic fish yeah even live i live in colorado now so i got to tell you one of the things that i miss the most in this trout culture of the american west is fishing for bass and fishing for stripers and kept being able to catch brim and crappy although you're in the crappie zone you call them crappie right yep we're in okay the well zone. i'm going to represent for atlanta then because <laughs> we call them we call them crappy Yep. Um, I don't know what the difference could be between Murfreesboro and Atlanta, but it's not Mason Dixon. It's crappy. It's the crappy crappie line. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, you know, that part of that may pull over from my my Memphis days. I was born in Memphis, and maybe that's oh. where. So maybe that's where it starts. Yeah, it's a little bit more west. Yeah, and I don't care what you call them; they taste good. They do. Call them what you want. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're if if you call them crappy, know that they're never crappy. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Love that. Oh, so how, how how'd you really get your start in fly fishing? I got my start in fly fishing from. When I was when I was about six or seven, I found a book um, at the school that I went to in Atlanta about fly fishing, and I was so excited to f- find any book about any kind of fishing in the school library, and that I was suddenly the teachers actually approved of me diving into this book and reading it. It was just you know it was like suddenly school. School got more interesting and my fishing was enabled. Before you knew it, I was reading about how to throw the fly, you know, throwing a popping bug into the into a pond and catch fish with a fly and how to cast. And it was uh it was a revelation. So really I'd been fishing so much, but I read about fly fishing and then I began to dabble with it through friends of my parents and then you know honestly david my my grandfather who died before i was born was a tremendous fly fisherman and i literally think that i was genetically it skipped a generation and i was genetically predisposed to uh fishing just because he was he was uh all about it that's you're yeah. not the first one i've heard say that actually a couple of a couple of episodes ago uh uh seth he owns um uh, a fly shop down in Chattanooga. Seth said this very same thing that his grandfather was a big time fly fisherman and he got a couple little items, you know, like a book and maybe some flies. And he treasures that. I mean, just like I yeah. treasure my grandfather's fly rod that I had refurbished. Same thing, you know, you kind of grab hold of it. May not be a thing, it may be a story. It may yep. be, it could be anything, but you grab hold of that and you, you know, I, I think that sort of stuff helps to shape you. It may not be the ultimately the driving force, but it certainly does shape you for sure. It did for me. It did for me. How do you how do you go from that kid that's that's reading books about popping bugs and, and fishing some? What's that look like as you start moving forward? Where do you go next? Well, you know, I was such a focused kid. There was no, hey, here's here's where Frank the kid uh stops and here's where Frank's hobbies start. Um, there was no line. It was, I was all in. I was all about birds, animals, and catching fish. And, you know, in, uh, for a long time, reptiles and amphibians as well. You know, there was nothing that was safe. I carried the rod, but man, if a snake slithered by, oh, I was going to grab it. And if I could catch a lizard or a salamander or a crawdad uh, along the way, I would. But, you know, it was, you know, just keeping my eyes peeled between casts. Uh, looking for fish. Fly rod takes you different places, doesn't it? Oh, it took me. It took me everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It took me everywhere. And you know, and at that time, uh, I was I was fishing uh, all different uh, methodologies. Uh, right around the time when I was a uh, sort of a middle teenager, I got my first uh, ambassador uh, baitcaster, and then not long after that, I got a Shimano Bantam. You know, right huh. when those came out, the little you remember those? Yes. I yes. St- dude, I I still yes. have one. I Do still you have, really? Actually, I still have two. Yeah, I've got one of the original silver ones, and I've got one of the very, very late, uh, very small sort of slate-colored ones. And you know what? They're great. They're great. Yeah. They're still really cool little reels. Um, and out here, you know, times when you're throwing a baitcaster, you're usually using 
quite a bit lighter line. So it's not bad to have a little bit geared down tackle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that we mentioned this, but you're out in Telluride right now, right? Is that right? Well, right now. Yeah. 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 My, my, I'm a Colorado kid these days. You know, I, I've, I moved out here to become a fishing guide uh, after going to school and getting a degree uh, in journalism, radio, TV, film production from uh, the University of Georgia in Athens, where I also fished a ton. <laughs> I fished the, the Oconee, the white bass run coming out of Lake Oconee into the Oconee uh, has to be, you know, has to be experienced to be believed. And then the thing that people don't realize about, you know, having now fished for them everywhere else is that the lower Southeast really has the corner on the market of really big white bass. Yeah. You know, they call them sand bass in Texas and they're fabulous. They call it, you know, Arkansas too, but Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, if you want the biggest white bass in the country, that's it. And if you find one, you find a bunch. Oh, and they're so cooperative, you know. <laughs> if you if if someone puts you into the middle of a bunch of white bass and you can't catch them, you need to hang it up. Yes. Because uh, I love them. There is a run, a white bass run, that's about 10 miles from my house every spring and a little bit later, but the the heavy part is in the spring. And I've taught I've taught many a people how to how to cast streamers and strip streamers because you get so much repetition when you find one. You know, you yeah. find one, you get him in, you throw, you get him off, you throw it right back in, you almost get another one right away. But you, there's still a little bit of technique that happens there. It's not like it's not a gimme every time you go and every cast you make, but it's you're you're going to get enough repetition to where somebody's going to really understand what they need to do. And I think that's important uh, to to making somebody a good streamer angler, and that carries forward. And you can carry a streamer anywhere you want to. You can carry it to the ocean. You. What does it matter? Streamers are the path to fishing the world. Yeah. Once you once you stop trout fishing, you realize that just about every other fish you'll ever fish for is caught with some sort of streamer or you know fly that you're going to be animating. And you have to be a good puppeteer. You know, it's your manipulation of the fly that sells them on biting it. So uh, you got to get good at drifting, but ultimately you really got to get good at making a fly fish in compelling in a compelling manner so having a lot of you know one of the things that going from white bass to trout to saltwater really has taught me it's a tremendous repertoire of stripping techniques you know long slow guides very short sharp snaps and everything in between um, and really sort of going through that repertoire when i'm just hopping onto a new spot or get you know hopping in the front of a, a boat nearby and just trying to figure out, hey, what are they into today? Moving, you know, through a real range of techniques and angles. Um, you know, that's that's regardless of where I fish. It, having a really wide repertoire of stripping techniques has been a huge fish catching uh, success story for me. Until you find out exactly what it is they're looking for that particular day. I've been saying walk, 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 jog, 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 run, run, run is kind of a you know, I'm sure you've probably heard that before, but it kind of keeps people in a rhythm of, okay, I need to do this. I need to speed it up a little bit. I need to speed it up a little more. And then we move on yep. to maybe a little bit longer, slower strip, maybe just a little short, quick wrist strip. You know, we start going through that. The pattern of stripping until you get into the pattern of eating is critical because you're not just bouncing around. Yep. So, and yep. streamers, streamers will make you focus on that pattern and make you forget about everything else. If you, if it's a good day, you really forget about everything else that you've been thinking about. You're just, you're in the zone. 
So as you're, as you're down around Atlanta, how did you get your, your start in the business? Because my brother and I had gotten into fishing so hard, I've, I've got a younger brother, and we were so into, so into fishing so young, um, my father, who did not fish but enabled, he was a professor at Emory. Dad didn't fish, but he knew to take my brother and I to some place to fish for a long time. And he became, as a non-fisherman, he became one of the best customers at the local fishing shop, uh, which is still called the Fish Hawk in Atlanta. Uh-huh. So, you know, we were really good customers there for about four or five years leading up to the time that I was, uh, at that point, I was now 12, about to go on thir- to be 13. And my dad said to then, the then youngish owner of the Fishhawk, uh, Gary Merriman, he was like, man, do you guys ever need, uh, you ever need anybody to sweep the floors or look after this place? You know, do you guys ever want uh, to hire a shop kid? And they were like, uh, you know, we might, we might hire Frank. I had the terrific fortune to work at the Fishhawk starting when I was, you know, like 12 and a half, almost 13, till I went off to college. And then, you know, and after that, I, I would come back. But one of the great things about, first of all, about fishing in the Southeast and Atlanta is it's so diverse. And nowhere was it more diverse than inside the Fishhawk. The Fishhawk was every bit a bass shop, every bit a saltwater shop. We had, we had 130 wides for marlin. We had uh, bait casters for stripers, and we had uh, fly rods for every trout and everything, all the way on up to tarpon and billfish and everything in between. And, you know, and Gary, he ran it, you know, and everybody that came in, you know, I would hear in, just in one day, I would hear stories, you know, fresh back from the Keys or Argentina or Michigan or New Zealand. And, you know, it was, it was an incredibly uh, horizon uh, expanding experience for me, you know, at this young age, starting at 12 and 13, first of all, to be hanging out with all these, uh, grown up men, uh, <laughs> uh, who are telling me all sorts of interesting things about my life ahead. And, uh, <laughs> and also to be learning, you know, about all of these incredible possibilities, um, far beyond the trout in my beloved home Chattahoochee and in, you know, in the farm ponds and rivers all around Georgia and the Southeast where I fished. Fishhawk played an, an immense part of getting me to this place where fishing really became my entire life. So there's eventually going to be a kid out there that's going to listen to this. If you were trying to get a job in a, in a shop as a kid, what would be the number one piece of advice you would give that kid? since you've lived it? First of all, you got to be patient because those jobs are hard to come by. But if you really care enough and you are a good enough listener and you are a good enough student of not just your little corner of the sport, but the whole, the whole thing, you know, you become really valuable to a fly shop. And the, the only thing more valuable to a fly shop than a really good shop kid is that shop staffer that is also at times uh, out on the water guiding. Right. Now that's the, that's the person that can really, you know, quote chapter and verse uh, and make sure that 
if people are in the store to buy something that they really get what they need. And, you know, the thing that really continues to set fly fishing apart is that you do need a mentor. You do need a connection. And for those people that go out and shop at a big box store to get their gear, you're really missing out. You know, if you really want to get good at fishing your local area, man, go to a fly shop. The prices are the same and the, the mentorship and the tut tutelage that you can get are, you know, are going to save you not just years, but de maybe a decade. That person that you're talking about, that mentor will save save you money in the long run. Tons. It's hard to say that, but they do. You don't buy two or three times. You buy once or twice, maybe. That's it. Well, and, you know, and to think about it, you know, now that I'm, you know, now that I'm a middle-aged man, um, the idea of being able to save either myself or somebody else a decade or two decades of doing it wrong, there is nothing, nothing in your life more valuable than time. Nothing. That is a fact. Parenting teaches me that as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that right there is a lifelong lesson. <laughs> well, and that's, that, that's one of the reasons, David, that I so love fishing is I really feel like that there's, there's a lot of great parallels between what fishing teaches us and how we should live our lives in terms of being, being patient and being observant and being alert and really uh, being appreciative of, you know, all these great places that, you know, we can go, we can let ourselves go if, uh, if we, uh, Make the effort. I'm going to go back to the fly rod. will take you a lot of places. It's gotten me to Colorado, to California, to Florida, to back to Michigan, all throughout the southeast. And I very seldom do I go anywhere without one. And most of the time I'm going because of one. So Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's, yeah. So you were at the Fish Hawk. It sounds like Gary kind of maybe made sure that you were headed in the right direction, maybe took you under his wing just a little bit. Gary, Gary was like the mean older brother that I never had. Um, and he, at the time he was running the place with Ronnie Hall, uh, who was like the, you know, on any given day, it was like the good cop, bad cop. Ronnie, uh, continues to be, uh, an incredible personality in the, uh, Georgia fishing scene who does still put in the occasional shift at the Fishhawk. But Gary and Ronnie were running the Fishhawk, which was over on Buckhead Avenue in Buckhead now. Uh, it's, it's, they, they've got a new, uh, address now and a bigger shop on, I want to say Miami circle, but, um, you know, it's, it's a fly shop that continues to be the largest fly shop east of the Mississippi huh. always was. Yeah. It's bigger than the fly shop in terms of sales volume and stuff like that than the shops in Boston or New York city or any of the larger places anywhere on the Eastern seaboard, Miami, um, Atlanta is an enormous fishing town, and uh, the Fishhawk has always been a clearinghouse for uh, setting people up and facilitating all kinds of far-flung and local at-home fishing. So anyhow, you know, Georgia was an amazing place to be, and, you know, the Southeast overall is one of the best places to become a really diverse uh, fly fisherman. I, that's, that was my experience. I kind of look at it, Atlanta as the a hub and with spokes off a wheel to go many, many different places within a three or four hour drive at the, you, you know, bet. 
and and get to some really quality water. And there's there's good water down around Atlanta too. And I've got I've interviewed a couple of folks that fish down in that area, and they and they primarily are trout guides uh, mm-hmm. in the North Georgia mountains. And but there's a the Chattahoochee is right there. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like you drive over it. If you're going anywhere north, it seems like you drive over it, and, and probably east as well. But did you do any spend any time on the, the hooch? Chattahoochee was probably the single most formative drainage in my entire life. I was raised five minutes from the banks of the Chattahoochee. I went out to the Chattahoochee to fish it for anything that would bite um, from back in the day when just north of Atlanta was a relative wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um to uh, believe it or not, I was fortunate enough to be able to jump in and, and be able to guide a little bit with River Through Atlanta Guide Service. Yeah. So I literally spent my spent this entire life all over the place and in Colorado guiding the West. And then they say you can't go home again, David, but uh, in a lot of really amazing ways, I was able to go home again and guide uh, on the Chattahoochee for you know the trout that i loved in all these places that i hadn't seen or thought about since quite literally my childhood and you know a lot had changed and i'll tell you what even as a really experienced trout guide in the west can i just tell you how hard eastern trout uh, and notably chattahoochee trout can be yeah 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 i mean i (laughs) I was I went I went in there. I was like, uh, you know, Chris Chris uh, Chris Scally is the guy who runs River Through Atlanta. I was like, uh, you know, Chris, I I grew up on this river, and you know, I've been guiding a lot. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out pretty quick. Um, yeah, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really being able to really be able to interpret and time your floats relative to the flow regime uh, that you may or may not get you know, in these Southern tailwaters is a never ending riddle and a wonderful equation to continuously work out in your mind. And, you know, I got it, I got it wrong a lot, um, but I got it right here and there too. And, and so um, I've got this wonderful uh, reacquaintance with the Chattahoochee that just finished happening here in the last year and a half since I've been back. That uh, was an incredible gift. And it was a big part of my, return to guiding having worked just about every other job at varying points in the fly fishing industry so i went into uh, uh the fish hawk when i was 12 to work and then by the time i got done with co- you know I, and I worked at the fish hawk till i was 18 went off to uga to study in athens got done with that and then as soon as i was done with that i began guiding so uh, and after that, I was a rep and I worked as a consultant and I still do a little bit of that for manufacturers as well. Um, you know, I've been in the fly fishing industry literally ever since. So the, the Chattahoochee put me on uh, kind of an and the fish hawk combined with the Chattahoochee put me on kind of a, a, a wonderful path that I'm really thankful for. We interviewed Chris. Oh, yeah. Did you? Yeah. we. I went down and visited him and... You know, he lives right there on the river, basically, right across the street from it. And you, so I pulled oh, yeah. into this little park. And I mean, it had, Frank, it had probably rained for two weeks solid 
every day at least it rained a little bit and most days it rained a lot and the hooch was just absolutely rolling in brown chocolate more like red blood red yeah blood red right there yeah and i was just thinking man you know this just uh this would be terrible you know because we we went through an extended rain period here too too and they were going through it down there as well but as i talked to chris he was talking about how well if you get up next to the dam a lot of times you can find some really clear water and he actually pieced that river for me uh piece by piece you know kind of like a kind of like a regular tailwater like i would be used to kind of like a spring creek like you would be used to up in pennsylvania in some places and he really stepped it down and explained it section for section and did a really nice job and his hospitality was fantastic uh he fed me while i was there which i couldn't thank him enough because i was a little bit hungry and just you know well you know how he is he's just the guy, a guy that can just really yeah you connect with almost right off the bat well and i'll, t- I'll tell you what when i was working with him and working for him it was his generosity with sharing with me techniques uh that really you know to tell you the truth really helped because returning to the chattahoochee um it was uh, an amazing riddle. So I really appreciate, I really appreciated his generosity there and still do. Give, give us one of the techniques. You don't have to give us your number one, but what's a, what's a, what's something that somebody should keep in mind? Probably if I decided I want to go down there other than hire Chris. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's essentially two, you know, real deal tactics on the Chattahoochee that are going to pay the bills the most often. And it's no surprise to hear, that, you know, at least for fly fishing, what you really want to do is nymph really skillfully with a black, not too big and not too small uh, rubber legs. Um, uh-huh. The Chattahoochee has a lot of Terranarsis stoneflies in it, and they're jet black. They are not brown. Uh, the fish love black. They like another, a number of other flies uh, next to that black stone, but uh, sooner or later, Fishing with either a black, a really good black rubber legs or a small black woolly bugger as your point fly and then trying smaller, smaller stuff or worms or, you know, whatever else uh, you're feeling at the moment. Just main, keeping that black centerpiece of your nymph rig is, uh, is what really worked a lot for me. And I would say the other technique would be obviously throwing streamers. And in the Chattahoochee, um, I was really surprised to see, you know, coming from a Western trout background, how often we use weighted flies and floating lines, and you just sort of let let the fly sink uh, on the leader. I was really impressed with the Chattahoochee being a a place where you really needed a sink tip. Um, And you really wanted to throw, you know, those guys would throw, you know, eight weights and nine weights these big old chicken head flies. And I didn't much feel like that. And I didn't much feel like handing, you know, an eight weight to a client because a lot of them would just not have a ton of fun with it. So I tended to fish with sink tips, but like on a six or a seven weight and a more moderate sized fly uh, so that clients could learn how to do it and have a better chance and typically catch a few of those fish that, you know, a lot of times, you're fishing for kind of a bigger fish when you're uh, throwing that. And there's only so many of those around the Chattahoochee. Having said that, um, it was it was an amazing way to catch a not very big fish, like a 14 or 15-inch wild brown. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so, so yeah, yeah, the, those are the those are the two uh, things. And the interesting thing about the Chattahoochee that I've not seen from the standpoint of uh, trout fishing, one of the things that I really appreciated about the Chattahoochee was um, that some unusual colors in your flies uh, really work. And you know that fire tiger combination mm, of yeah. chartreuse, chartreuse and that sort of halfway fluorescent orange, yep. you know, and usually with a little bit of black striping or highlights in there, um, the fish, I have no idea why they liked it, but they did. Yeah. So yeah, so Chattahoochee wise, you got to have nymph with some black stones and don't be afraid to fish some big rigs uh, with sink tips and, you know, sometimes some pretty out there fire tiger um, colored streamers. The fire tiger doesn't catch you a lot of fish. And I don't, I'm, I'm like, you. Yeah, I'm not sure All what kinds. the combination is, but it could anywhere from peacock bass to, to white bass, even believe it or not. Muskie like it. Uh, trout obviously like it. So it's just, it's, it's one of those, I want to say tarpon it's a color, too. but I, I think it's a combination. Yeah. Tarpon yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. Tarpon and snook are freaks for it. Yeah. Yeah. Lose, lose their minds. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was just weird to, you know, you think of all these sort of rambunctious giant scale game fish that like fire tiger. And that was the first time I'd run into a place where fire tiger was really a trout thing. So yeah, there, there you go. Um, that, and you know, uh, the, the number one technique for the Chattahoochee is to call the dam to get the release schedule and be where there is either low or dropping water. Yeah. Fish don't much like the rise. They do like the drop, at least yeah. on the hooch. Yep. Which is unusual because I know some other places where, you know, for example, on the white, uh, rising water uh, could be amazing. Yeah. Uh-uh, on, the Ch- on the Chattahoochee, for me, it was rarely very productive. You know, and here in Middle Tennessee, you can get it on, get well, the, the Caney in particular when it's when it's on uh, and fishing well. You can fish the rise and catch some fish, but it's like a very short window, and it's hard to stay right. in that window as the water's coming up. If you can push down quick enough and fish slow enough, it's a great experience. But it's that's there is an art to that and it's very tough. So our next and thing it, is falling water. And then that's when it's really, really good. And do you find that to stay on that curve of the rising water that you have to have a power boat to keep yourself in it? It helps to have one. I don't, I've got a drift boat, so it just takes a lot of work and eventually totally. you just fall out of it. Right. That was my experience. Cause I was rowing the hooch also, and I didn't have an outboard and I would make fun of the other guys that had kickers on the back of their dories. I was like, Oh, you know, you motor people don't understand, <laughs> you know, how hard I'm having to row here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyhow, um, and Chris, you know, notably Chris, Chris is a master at staying in that curve cause he's got a jet boat yep. that he, Ooh, and fishing with him. He's like, he's like, you know, Oh, this has been great. And you're still really catching me. He's like, but we got to go. It's like, no, no, I think we should stay. He's like, he's like oh, no, we've got to go. Trust you want to stay in it. Yeah. If you want to stay in it, reel in, reel in, let's go. And so, you know, to, to be good at a southern tailwater, you have to routinely break the cardinal rule of guiding, which is don't leave fish to find fish. Yes. And, the you know, dealing with the T- TVA and that flow okay. regime that we have in the south means you got to do that over and over and over again. Uh, which it's a big confidence move. Oh, you know? absolutely it is. Yeah, yes. it is. Yes. And oh God, will it leave you hanging? Yeah. I've, yeah. I've been, I've been behind the flow on the Chattahoochee more than once. Yeah. I've been hung out before too of, of even on falling water, you can get on falling water and spend too much time somewhere and yes. get out of the right fall. And then you're just stuck Not be able in to low water. 
Yeah, and you can't, yep. you really can't catch up on that one because everything's kind of dead. So there's yeah, basically two sides to that coin. And it's it's hard not to want to stand and linger in that <laughs> dropping water. It's just getting more and more interesting looking, you know, with each passing moment. But you, and it's, you know, it's so inviting, especially in a clear southern tailwater where you're just like, oh, this is looking more and more like a spring creek with any moment. You don't even notice that you haven't caught anything for half hour, hour, hour and a half. It's like, oh, well, this is beautiful, but yeah. um, it suddenly sucks. And now I can't catch that. I can't catch that southern tide. And I think one of the problems with that low water scenario is that you start seeing the bottom and you yeah. start seeing fish. Right. Don't always realize that they've stopped eating whatever it is that you're you're trying to get them to eat because they've, yeah. they're just now they're in hunker down mode, which I feel like there's if I had to put a thought in their head, which I often do and no, I shouldn't. But there, my thought would be that they're. They're thinking, wonder what's going to happen. How low is this going to get? And where's my safety safety exit? Right. And how do I get there? And where's it going to take me? And then the next thing you know, they're not thinking about food or your fly. But I can see them. They're right there. And that that makes it tough. Yeah, it adds to the adds to their moodiness. And I'll tell you what, southern southern trout. I have found fish in the southeast are quite a bit harder to catch trout wise than they are in the American West. If you are a good southeastern trout fisherman and can really catch wild fish in the southeast. You will find that fishing in the West is not a cakewalk, but it's pretty straightforward. You know, there's no rhododendron out here. Right. There's no mountain laurel out here. Um, <laughs> vegetation out here will oftentimes give you your fly back. How's yep. that for? How's that for a difference? Um, <laughs> and we've got, you know, out here we've actually got room to backcast. It's it's pretty novel. But the 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 main thing that I really notice with the fish out here is how much less shy trout are in the west and i fished for some very shy fish out here they are not as shy as a pressured southeastern fish that is in you know like for example one of the one of the streams in you know smoky mountain national park or in north georgia or something like that you know catching a 16 inch brown out of a small stream in the appalachians is harder than catching a 25 inch brown in the American West. That is a hard fish to get near. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's catch some, with a fly. There are some guys up in the Smokies that are really good at it and North Georgia. Uh, yep. Jimmy Harris comes to mind, his group uh, out of Yukoi. I did a, uh, I did a fishing show when I was doing the TU show on the rise. I went fishing with Jimmy and everywhere we went, Jimmy uh, caught more fish than I did. Like right now. It's just like, oh, come on, Jimmy, you know, help a brother out. Show me what I got to do here. I've right. forgotten what it takes to catch these Appalachian fish. <laughs> and when you fish with Jimmy, one of the things that Jimmy does, it's not all fish, but it's certainly the first fish or two of the day. Um, you know, you know, you're fishing with a Southerner when, when he hooks up, he goes, yee-haw! <laughs> So, you know, and we're all mic'd up and like that. And it's just like, oh, my God, Jimmy. You know, now everybody knows you're catching them. And I've got, you know, I, I don't really yee-haw it so much when I catch them. But anyhow, uh, I heard Jimmy yee-hawing a lot when we were fishing together. And we were fishing a delayed harvest on uh, the Georgia portion of the Nantahala in addition to some other areas in northern Georgia. And it was, it was pretty cool. But, yeah, Jimmy was... Jimmy was uh, way more proficient at catching his home fish than I was. <laughs> and every, Jimmy knows everybody. You can't, he can't go anywhere without knowing 
somebody. It's it's true. It's yeah. true. So if I think about Atlanta as a, as that spoke that I was talking about earlier, let's move on to because there's some salt water down there too, and I know you've done some salt water yeah. stuff. Half half of my life. Yeah. How did you get into it? What really drug you into salt water the way that you got into it? Well, a lot of things. I mean, you know, I, I, t- I told you that my parents were from the north and from the south. My mom was from Boston and her family had a place uh, on an island in Maine. So I would go up and some of the very first fishing memories of my entire life were trolling for mackerel simply to feed the family uh, out of a rowboat when I was a kid. And I just loved it from the word go. And we'd tro- we would literally troll daredevils, daredevil spoons. Red and white. Behind a ro- yep, behind a rowboat where my dad rode. And we would just haul these mackerel in hand over fist. And they're beautiful little fish. They're about the size of a trout. Um, they've got this amazing green and black tiger stripe. You know, they look like kind of a brookie striping pattern on their top. They're yeah. gorgeous. And anyhow, so, and I caught flounder. And so to me, it was never about fresh and salt as much it was it was just all great fishing. And I never really drew a line uh, between the two until, you know, kind of farther down the road when I, you know, started to really think about what some of the differences I was finding between fresh and salt as I became a more analytical uh, fisherman. There are some things that you can take back and forth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, freshwater fish, in a lot of ways, they are harder to catch, but easier to find. Saltwater fish, are easier to catch, but harder to find. It's a great sort of uh, principle that I find that continues to be true with some notable uh, exceptions like, you know, permit and roosters and stuff like that, where they're both hard to find and hard to catch. Yeah, so there, and that's why, you know, that's why when people talk about the very hardest fish to catch in the planet, a lot of times it ends up being a saltwater fish. As you're thinking about saltwater out there, is there anything in particular, anything, anybody in particular that really started you down that road of, of salt water from, from fresh to salt water? Well, you know, I, I was really fortunate in that I grew up next to this amazing man named Ron Curry. Ron Curry was one of the great pioneers of saltwater fly fishing in the Florida Keys, you know, really starting. I think he began fly fishing in the Keys in 1951 or 52. And, you know, by the time I got to know him as a little kid that lived next door, he had this amazing trophy room downstairs in his house that had tarpon and sharks and eagle rays and sawfish and redfish and permit and bonefish and barracuda and snapper all on the wall. It was like this complete fishing paradise. And Ron was ultimately became one of the greatest mentors that I ever had. And it was Ron many, many years ago when I was probably still not even 10 years old. Ron, you know, kind of commenting on me talking about how amazing the brim fishing was in the creek down the way. He was like, Frank, one day you're going to realize that fresh water's for drinking and salt water's for fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he was, he was sort of, uh, he was such an incredibly wise man. Uh, and, uh, I listened, you know, without fail to everything that he said, I don't fully agree with his sentiment there because I do so love, uh, freshwater, but he makes a really valid point. He makes a really valid point 
And I do find that if you're good at saltwater fishing, um, fish everywhere become a little bit easier. Mm. And, you know, and if you're good at trout fishing, it's a really terrific start to uh, being a pretty good saltwater fisherman in places too. You know, if you've got a good understanding of how to find trout, you can find snook. You can find stripers in the Atlantic Northeast. Um, you've just got an eye for it that you may not realize, but you do. Um, so, you know, I, I see all the ways in which uh, one fish pertains to another. I was adding it up not too long ago. You know, my friend Jeff Courier has probably caught, I don't know how many hundred, hundreds of fish. I know Courier's probably caught like four or 500 now species. But oh, wow. uh, I, yeah, isn't that amazing? That is amazing. And so I sat down, inspired by him, I sat down and tallied it up. And I've caught about 320 oh, different wow. species of fish. And, you know, some of them are, you know, not terribly notable, like a lizard fish or I nymphed up a sculpin or this or that. Yeah. But yeah. I've caught some really wonderfully diverse and unusual and different fish from all over, all over the planet. And uh, I see more similarities between them than I see big differences. You do kind of start connecting dots the more, the more, the more you see, the more you take in, the more you learn, the more you can start connecting those dots of, of some fish have these habits and some fish have these tendencies. You know, so Ron Curry uh, was this amazing influence in my life. And he began saltwater fly fishing in the Florida Keys as a young man in the 1950s. He actually ended up teaching his friend, Billy Pate, how to fly fish. And he you know, he was just this amazing figure in my life who took the time to show me how to double haul uh, an eight weight in the backyard when I was eight. Um, he, you know, he had three beautiful daughters and a dragster. So I was always, you know, there's a hundred reasons to go to the neighbor's house oh, yeah, uh, at drag. all times. Yeah. Yeah. He's, <laughs> hey man, Ron was friends with Evil Knievel. Really? Dude, how cool is that? <laughs> that yeah. He had cool. picked, I never met Evil, but, uh, he had pictures of him and evil doing all kinds of crazy shit all over the South. Cause evil lived in Atlanta for a while. I didn't know um, that. Either. I think he did. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, uh, he was just this amazing figure. And uh, though we didn't fish together very often, we fished a little bit together. He had a place up at Lake Lanier and we went and fished together there some, but uh, he, you know, it was casting in the yard and him telling me stories about fishing in the Florida Keys where he would say, hey, you know, I used to go be able to go to Lignum Vitae and lay down in the road and take a nap because he, he knew that there wouldn't be a car driving down the overseas highway for another 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> and he said, you know, for the first long time, he hardly ever had a boat because he could just wade out and catch 10-pound bonefish anywhere he wanted to go, you know, all along the road system there. And, um, it's, and you know, and he was not really friends with Ted Williams. I don't think Ted Williams was friends with a whole lot of people because um, Ted was a tough personality, but Ron was friends with all the original guides, you know, down there from Jimmy Albright to George Hommel to, you know, the who's who of the people that really started fly, saltwater fly fishing as we knew it. Flip Pallet, Stu Apt, you know, all these guys knew Ron by first name and they all fished in tar tarpon tournaments and bonefish tournaments throughout the 60s and 70s. Anyhow, so it was this the amazing wellspring of cutting edge fly fishing knowledge that 
Ron let me in on. And then, you know, as I went to the Fishhawk, it, you know, it continued to just sort of blow right open, blow wide open. So Atlanta and growing up there with these incredible, you know, mentors uh, really instantly exposed me to a much broader slice of the world possibilities with regards to fly fishing. What are the chances of living right down the street of somebody like that? It was amazing. I live right across the street from the guy that really took me under his wing. An oh, excellent, yeah? excellent neighbor. And I just came home with a fly rod in the back of the truck, and I had just got done fishing fishing and catching two fish. So I thought, I got this thing dialed in, you know. And he comes out and he goes, you've been fly fishing? And I wanted to say, well, whatever gave you that idea? You know, there's a fly rod hanging out the back of my truck. But I said, yeah. He said, well, whenever, whenever it cools down a little bit, I'll take you fly fishing. And I said, yeah. I thought to myself, I'll show you a thing or two. That did not happen. I mean, but, but I mean, he was right across the street from me. Like, literally, he could back out of his driveway up into mine. What are the chances of, of you having somebody right down the street that, that had those connections and those, that understanding of that type of fishing and knowing people like he sounds like he knew? That's just crazy. It is. It is. And, you know, for a long time, I used to tell people, you know, as I kind of got more and more into the fly fishing business, and I would bump into Stu after I'd bump into... Flip Pallet, you know, and these were people that I didn't really know. Um, Rick Ruoff, you know, this whole legendarily uh, keys bunch of uh, expert anglers. And I would introduce myself and I would say, hey, you know, I'm, I bring news from my friend and my mentor, Ron Curry. And they would immediately be like, whoa, where did Ron go? And I would tell them, you know, what Ron was up to and what Ron was doing. And Ron had become sick and it kind of... Uh, confined to a wheelchair uh, right after, you know, kind of taking the world of uh, saltwater fly fishing by storm. And, uh, and, you know, it was, it was during, you know, sort of this time where I'd moved to the West to pursue my fly fishing that Ron, you know, uh, because he could no longer fish, gave me these reels that I had fondled and looked after and, you know, just stared at my entire life, um, these saltwater uh, fly reels. And he gave them to me, and I, I have them uh, to this day. And I fish with them still. Because that, the, that was the promise. He was like, you know, Frank, I'm in this wheelchair. I can't, I can't go fish anymore. He was like, I watch my friends on TV now catching all these fish, and I wish I could do it. But I need you to take these reels and go out there and do it and send me pictures and keep me posted on how it's going. And he gave me a, a Seamaster tarpon and a Seamaster salmon. So essentially those are, you know, one's obviously a tarpon reel uh, and the other is essentially a bonefish reel. And I've caught the living crap out of both of those fish and a whole lot of others on both of those reels. And invariably, you know, when I hop into a boat in the Keys, my guide friends are like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what are you doing? That reel needs to go back on shore into a glass case. And I explained to him sort of what it's all about. And, uh, you know, that um, I need to keep his memory alive by uh, taking this out and, and really using it. So the glass case wasn't that wasn't the deal, was it? No, no. And I've got, you know, I've got a glass case in my house that I put them in. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they live there but they don't stay there all the time. And I, you know, and the cool thing is, is I caught my, not my biggest tarpon, but I caught my biggest bonefish on uh, the Seamaster salmon that Ron gave me. 
That's awesome. I caught about yeah, I caught a twelve pounder off of Key Largo, uh, kind of back in the day, and uh, um, yeah, yeah, back when there was a lot more bigger bonefish around the Keys than there are at the moment. But yeah, they're com- they're coming back pretty quick. I think they I think they come and go. Yeah, fish t- tend to travel. They're one place for a while, another place for a while, and I think they rotate in and out of size and everything else. There's way yeah. more to it than we'll ever know. Well, you know, now that they're tagging bonefish, they're finding out that Cuban bonefish are Florida bonefish are Bahamian bonefish. You have to remember that bonefishing started because people needed to go catch them for bait. You have to remember that back in the day of the Bahamian, uh, the Long Key Fishing Club and the Bahamian tuna and marlin clubs that were at Bimini, um, going out to get a bonefish was the number one that's a bonefish is the number one bait for a blue marlin or bluefin tuna and the reason that the bonefish is recognized by those fish is because periodically schools of bonefish will leave the flats and go from florida across the straits of florida to the bahamas or to cuba um so they're they get seen by all these pelagic fish that are like man those bonefish are delicious yeah it must really taste good <laughs> yeah yeah So literally, bone fishing sprung out of a need to go catch bait. And, you know, Hemingway and Zane Gray all wrote about when they were pursuing tuna off Bimini, how they would send the boys out to go catch bait, catch bonefish. And they were always coming back late because they were having such a good time (laughs) going out catching bait. No kidding. No kidding. (laughs) It's this ongoing theme. And uh, finally, the grownups go out to catch bait because they can't, you know, they can no longer rely on the kids to catch bait and get back on time. And they're like, damn, this is really fun. <laughs> and that is part of what gave us bone fishing, a uniquely Bahamian and Floridian pursuit at first. And it was all because billfish and bluefin loved to eat bonefish. And they still do. They still do. It's a great bait. That is. That's awesome. Well, think about how symmetrical a bonefish is and how perfectly you can rig it to troll. You know, bonefish is the world's most symmetrical fish. You know, it's just as tall as it is wide. um, So it never trolls funny. Right. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a, I'm telling you, and it's chrome, the most reflective fish you could ever tie on. Yeah. So, yeah. I have never thought of that, but that makes sense. Bonefish started out as. Uh, people gathering bait well hey i want to move on to one more topic that we've got here and, and you're in telluride yeah is that kind of where you're going to be for a while you think well i'm going to be in i'm going to be in colorado david you know i, I spend uh, i i spend my greatest amount of time in telluride guiding and my wife and daughter uh, are in uh boulder so i uh i go back and forth uh, a fair amount um, my wife is a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. As a matter of fact, tomorrow I'm going to hop in the car and go back uh, up to Boulder, check in with them. Well, we've got flights leaving Charlotte, Atlanta, Louisville, Little Rock, Nashville every day, headed out mm-hmm. to Denver. Some headed into, I guess, to Telluride. With a with little a bit here and there. Telluride is wonderfully hard to get to. Which makes it intriguing. Doesn't ma- matter who you are, they're going to lose your luggage too. <laughs> So carry on your tra- your rods. Yeah, yeah. Flying into Denver, flying into Telluride, flying in somewhere close. If I decided I wanted to come out there next summer, 
what would you have me do to really have a good experience out there? Because th- this this is a another place that's on my bucket list, and I'm sure there's a mm-hmm. listener out there, and it's on their bucket list. Well, you know, southern Colorado, whether you're talking about Telluride or Durango, we've got a lot of rivers that uh, start at very high elevations um, and really roll right down out into the desert. That's one of the things that we've really got is access to a greater variety of elevations than almost any other part of the uh, Rockies. We can go 20 minutes and lose 5,000 feet. Right. You know, I mean, like fast. Yeah. Um, maybe not 5,000, but certainly three or four. And that's, you know, that's part of the fun here is that we have trout that live, you know, at 12,000 feet. And if you know where you're going, we've got trout that live at five or 6,000 feet. And it, it allows for a great deal of versatility. As far as the rivers around here, I, I'm a big fan of the Gunnison River. Uh, the Gunnison is the second largest river in Colorado. The Gunnison comes together with the Colorado at Grand Junction, and that's why it's called Grand Junction. Okay. And, you know, the Gunnison winds out through the desert all the way through there, and where it comes out of the highlands from Gunnison, Colorado, and Crested Butte, Colorado, all the way down to Grand Junction, there is something interesting going on in that river just about any time of the year. It's a great place to catch some big fish. It's a great place to catch numbers of fish. And, you know, there's a, just an amazing amount of diversity. Doesn't the upper part of that river have a salmon run of some kind? Yeah. Uh, just below the Taylor? Yep. The and world then, record kokanee, yeah. um, as far as I know, pretty much all come from the Gunnison uh, upstream of Blue Mesa Reservoir. So, you know, my, my friends over there have caught some real deal 27, 28 inch kokanee. Huge one. You know, these are nine or 10 pound fish maybe. And there's some big browns in there too, aren't there? Way, yeah. The browns get much bigger. I think the state record brown is a 30 pounder Yeah, that came in one of the tributaries of the Gunnison, which is called the East River. But it's widely thought that that fish swam up into the headwaters from the lake below. Um, so the, you know, the Gunnison's got three or four reservoirs on it and a number of different runs going in and out of those reservoirs. Um, and down here, it's, you know, it's our big river. Uh, it's where we float the most. We've got, you know, probably 20 other small and medium-sized rivers uh, all around here that are lovely as well. And, you know, we don't have as many fish as, say, Aspen or Steamboat uh, it's, or Vail, but we have a lot fewer fishermen. Because it's not easy to get to. Yeah, and, you know, and our fishing requires a little bit higher degree of athleticism. You know, down in this neck of the woods, because of that great range of elevations, um, you know, we've got some real high gradient. We've got some rivers that really pour out of the mountains, and you got to, you know, you kind of got to be a badass to scramble up them. Um, And if you can scramble up a half mile, you're going to catch a bunch of fish. If you can scramble up a whole mile, uh, you're going to catch twice that many. Yeah. So, you know, there's some athleticism that goes with – some of our fisheries and the more athletic you are the less footprints you see and you also if you're coming in from from one of these places charlotte atlanta louisville nashville anything anywhere like that or 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 even little rock it's pretty mm-hmm. dang flat here and it, it it takes a while to get acclimated for most humans <laughs> oh yeah yeah it takes me you know when i come back south um it takes me two or three days um when i return to colorado to really get my wind you know i'm, I'm i live at nine thousand feet here in telluride 
and it is, you know, it's really uh, high elevation. And uh, no matter who you are, um, when you go out west, give yourself some time at the beginning to acclimate. Don't go out and party too hard. Yep. Uh, and get yourself all dehydrated. Um, I've seen a bunch of people really ruin their entire vacation on the first night. Yeah. Yep. Um, just by overdoing it. And, you know, once you get dehydrated out here, um, it's hard to come back from. It can be really debilitating. Yeah. 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 And it's something you, something you do not have to think about in the South. You no. know, I'll have, a, I'll have a water bottle by my side in the South. Uh, and, you know, even in August, I'll only take two or three sips out of it. Whereas in the, in the West, I'll go through an entire Camelback. When I, the first time I came out there, we stopped at the grocery store. I had a friend that lived out there for a while, and he said, come on out here and fish with me. And we fished the Taylor and the Gunnison. Oh, wow. That's where we went to. We stayed in Almont. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, when we left the airport, I had, my, I had my Camelback, and I said, stop in this grocery store. And I bought 24 waters. And I was there for four days. Actually, probably three days is more like it. Went through all 24 of those filled that camel back up numerous times at the cabin we were staying at. And he just kept saying, yeah. I've never seen anybody drink so much water, but it was because I was paranoid that I was going to get sick, that I was going to get dehydrated. I couldn't get it back in a short enough time for me to, to be able to make the most out of that particular trip. So that's that was my goal. And, good job. And I did pretty good. And I've been out since then and not done quite as well, but it's never been because I ran out there and drank the, you know, drank the first night. That's a, uh, that's a no-no. And that's, you know, and that's a huge difference between fishing in Colorado and fishing in Montana, for example, even Wyoming. Yeah. You know, m- most of the fishing happens in Colorado above 6,000 feet. Most of the fishing in Montana and Wyoming happens below 6,000 feet. Let me ask you one more question here since, since we're talking about Telluride. What about places to eat? Is, are there really good places to eat out there? Because that's way up on my list. Telluride as a Western destination is... Uh, is a really it's a really pretty amazing one. It's got a lot of amazing outsized culture for its size of town. It's only you know it's only maybe three thousand people that live here uh, year round, but we've got you know all these film festivals and music festivals and all this kind of cool stuff uh, that goes on throughout the summer. Uh, we've got because of the proximity of the desert to here, we've got some amazing farmers markets. We get some terrific produce uh, from down low, and we've got uh, some of the finest restaurants uh, of any ski area in Colorado here in Telluride. And there's some there's some stuff that's reasonably priced, and there's some stuff that's outrageously priced, and there's some good stuff in between as well. So you know, however uh, you want to play it, there's there's some terrific cuisine here in Telluride, and a lot of a lot of great ingredients. For if you you know want to rent a rent a condo or rent a house and cook it yourself, so that, that's usually how I end up preferring to do it. I usually do the same. I'll go out two or three times, and and that's that's why food is high on my list. But I like I like to also eat in and and even if it's just a bologna sandwich for lunch, you know, and save up those those really really good restaurants. Eating local fresh fresh fruit food like that is that can't be beat either totally get that well you want to hear something traitorous to uh <laughs> to know about the the west is that the gunnison in a town called palisade is responsible for and i come from the peach state so i feel like i know peaches but i'm sorry my fellow georgians Uh-oh. um the best peaches in america i'm from colorado really yes sir best sweet corn also oh yep sorry okay 
And I'm telling you, man, uh, Colorado peaches are among uh, the best got to be on the planet. Dude, somebody just hit hit stop on this podcast right there. Somebody from Georgia just hit stop. And they're like, I can't listen to this anymore. <laughs> he's right. He's and he's not and he's not wrong. And he's not wrong. I didn't want it to be true either. I grew up my whole life knowing that Georgia had the best peaches uh, anywhere. And, you know, it, it gave me the best means to be able to appreciate the one place where there might be a little bit better. <laughs> I came for the fish, but stayed for the peaches. Well, we're going to stop on that note, Frank. Man, I sure appreciate you. We put this together really quick, and it's it's going to it's going to be a good one. Yeah, I know it is. Yeah, well, um, I had a great time talking to you, David. I learned quite a bit about about the southeast around the Georgia Atlanta area that I things I didn't know, and topping it off with uh, things I didn't know about Telluride and and uh, in that area. Even though I've been out to the out to the Gunnison and that that sort of thing. So, man, I really appreciate you letting us come in into your home and i hope you make your your trip across the state tomorrow a very safe one and when you're in this when you're back in the south if you come back through nashville and i assume you probably will sooner or later you need to look me up and let's go fish honestly i I will make time to go thank you thank you i would love that man and you know um yeah uh hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later when do when do how long does musky season last uh to you do you will you go for them as late as april or is that yeah, so I'll I'll take off December there, and I've had some trips up in early December, but then you start getting around mid December and Christmas is there. January and February, if you've got good days that are warm, you can have some good warm days in those two two months. March April is when it's it's really can be really really good. You get into May, it starts getting warm. The water starts getting you know kind of low, warm. and frankly, I start back trout guiding right. so. So oh, yeah. kind of do what you got to. So. I'd hate to be a full-time musky guy. It'd be too much of a roller coaster. Yeah. Like I was saying the other uh, earlier, you know, Sunday I was out. And we just had, it was just a terrible day. Just terrible. Yeah. We didn't see a fish in a stretch of water that we should have seen 10. Yeah. And just, I don't know where, I don't know where the hell they were. I just don't know. And I told the guys, hey, I don't, I don't know where they are. And man, they were throwing some good flies in some great places with some great retrieves. And you would think one of them would run out there and at least grab or it. Or just but... follow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or just even, I mean, we didn't even get that. You know, then you start questioning yourself. And at the end of the day, you're just like, woo, I'm wore out. Yeah, so. well, you know, muskies did get a lot more popular um, here the last little bit. Yeah. Well, man, I sure appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Very good job, as usual. Nice to visit with you, David. I appreciate the interest. Thanks for including okay. me. All right. Thanks, Frank. Okay. See you. Bye-bye.